0: This week's parasha is parsha's bow. Bo means to come, and the Almighty instructs Moshe to come to Pharaoh, because I made his heart heavy or hardened his heart and the heart of his of his of his people, in order that I could put these miracles and signs in their midst. Now Pharaoh is becoming a believer, uh, almost against his will. He's almost being forced into it. He's being handcuffed into faith. And I, I was thinking there's a little bit of a pattern here. Uh, the first five plagues, Pharaoh himself hardens his own heart. Like we mentioned last week, Pharaoh had a predisposition towards heart, hardening uh, himself. But you'll notice after five plagues of him hardening his own heart, uh, he has to have God harden his heart. And what changed? So I, I think there's a little bit of a pattern. If you look at the six plagues, boils. How did the boils plague begin? Moshe takes a a handful of soot, of coals, of ashes, throws it up in front of Pharaoh, and the entire Egypt is blanketed in boils. Both humans and animals, and that's an obvious, undeniable miracle. There's no way to say that, oh, this was some naturally occurring phenomenon. Uh, there happened to have been something that just happened you just haven't gotten, gotten very lucky, and once it becomes undeniable, and really there's no way out uh, then Pharaoh, even though he would have wanted to harden his own heart, he was unable to. The next plague is hail, and we're told specifically that it was a hail never before seen in the land of Egypt, and never uh, again to be seen. It means it was something so unprecedented, so out of the ordinary. That there was really no, there was no c- comparable uh, event, and therefore, again, Pharaoh ha- was not able to, even though he would have wanted to, to harden his heart. And we're going to begin again with uh, the, in this in this week's partial with the final three, and beginning with Locust. Again, we're told by Locust that it was never before seen a plague like this in the land of Egypt. Of course, darkness just where for seven days you don't have any sun or any light or anything like that. Uh, and, of course, death of the firstborn, all simultaneously, these are undeniable phenomena. And it's interesting to note, Pharaoh himself is trying as best as he can to deny the miracles and deny the fact that God is ultimately in control, even when he's being forced into it. And we're gonna, that's going to be a, a a theme that's threading its way throughout the Parsha. So, in the run-up to this eighth plague of locust. The Almighty sets out the objective. And this is again another theme throughout this partial. Look at verse 2. Uh, why am I going to make these miracles? So that you may relate in the ears of your son and your son's son that I made a mockery of Egypt and my signs that I placed among them, that you may know that I am I am Hashem. And this we see again and again. These events are the events that we perpetuate to future generations. This is what we tell our kids about. Our kids tell their kids, and it goes on for eternity. This, these events, these, and not only that, this is what leads us that we should know that Hashem is God. Our faith is substantiated upon this revelation, or these revelations, and indeed our nation is Based upon It begins here. This is where it begins, as we'll see some other examples of that as well. And it begins with these revelations of faith that are really going to inspire the Jews from then onward. Moreover, we see that what is the requirements of faith? Uh, in, in modern day parlance, faith is something that you have to kind of feel in your heart. You, know, you feel faith or you don't feel faith, and, and that's why it's somewhat fickle. If you look at this verse, it says, we have to know that I am Hashem. The, the, the visuals, the imagery, what we're going to encounter with these plates is going to be so striking, it's going to have a sensory impact, and it's going to make it that we know that Hashem exists. It's not going to be merely a, uh, an article of faith. And the difference is, is that when someone has faith based upon feelings, Feelings can be swayed. You can feel one day one thing, the next day you can feel something else. And therefore, uh, you know, what's going to ensure that your faith in God is not going to be subject to the whims or to the way the wind is blowing? And that's, you know, who wants, how can we substantially anything real upon such weak foundations? But if your foundations, if your faith is based upon what you know, what you've proven, what is evidence-based? What's empirical? Well, then, even if things are happening and you feel you don't feel great one day, still, what's fact is fact. Someone could be having a miserable day and they should be upset at the world, but oxygen still fills their lungs, right? Uh, and they still don't deny that, and the you know the sky is still blue. If we transform our faith into the way they had it. That it's based upon evidence, it's facts, what we know, then it's not subject to what, you know, bad things happen to good people. That, oh, where's the fa- you know, faith, faith can be challenged. Well, is oxygen challenged? How come no one challenges the, cause that's a fact. You know, that's what we know. That's true. That's undeniable. That's what they achieved at, at the Exodus. And that's what we can achieve as well because we're going to perpetuate this. And this was perpetuated to us. And we can reflect back upon that. And that could build, hopefully for us, a very strong edifice. Of faith for us. Now, it's also interesting that part of the goal of these plagues is to make a mockery of Pharaoh. Uh, and it's an interesting, it's just an interesting use of term. You know, why is it not enough to just tell Pharaoh? You know, to have him. You know, we want him to be humbled, and we wanted. You know, there has to be a mockery of, of Pharaoh. It's it's a little bit of a of a strange thing, but I, I do I do believe. But there's a powerful lesson over here. Pharaoh is someone who is a measly human where they have a 60, a 70, maybe a 100 year lifespan. And then they put their body in the ground and worms gnaw at it. It's like it's a joke. And he's standing up to God. It's like if you had an ant on the floor who's coming to you and wagging his finger, brandishing, is threatening you. It's an absolute hilarious joke. And Pharaoh is standing before God and saying, who is this God? I don't believe it. And God's humbling him it. again. And it's, it's really funny. It's humorous to think where Pharaoh had come from, where Moshe comes and introduces this notion, who's God? And he starts laughing at them. Oh, you do a miracle? Oh, I'll pull in my magicians. They'll do the same thing. And that's where it starts and where it's going to end, where Pharaoh is going to be progressively humbled again and again. It's really humorous, the clash of the eternal with the transient, and the illusions of someone like Pharaoh is really, it's, it does have a, a element of humor in it. And that continues, by the way, verse 3. Moshe and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and they said to him, So said Hashem, the God of the Hebrews, Till when do you refuse to be humbled before me? Send my people so that they may worship me. I was thinking, imagine... Uh, the Jewish people are enslaved in uh, in Stalin's Russia, or in Putin's Russia, for that matter. And you know, you're Moshe, and you're going to try to lobby in favor of their release. And you tell the leader, "Why do you refuse to be humbled?" It's pretty remarkable what they're asking of power, but really, that what that's what has to happen. The plagues are not merely a means to allow the people to escape. Like we said, if that was the plague, they would have left after the fifth plague. Once Pharaoh capitulated, there's no need to harden his heart. There is a need, however, for Pharaoh to be humbled because of the powerful impact that that's going to have on the Jewish people. The Jewish people previously had their allegiances to Pharaoh. They were subject to him, and they had become uh, modified to to look at Pharaoh as their uh, master. Now they see Pharaoh humbled before God, and they realize that Pharaoh himself has an overlord. And Moshe and Aaron introduce the next plague, and that's a locust swarm. And it's going to be so vast and so complete and so powerful and so tremendous, it's going to cover everything. And all the produce that was salvaged from the hail is going to be swept up by the swarm. It's going to consume everything. It's going to be such a vast swarm of locusts, never seen before and never seen since they made. The, they told Pharaoh what happened, what's going to happen, and they left. Pharaoh's people, you know, they already get the message. They they see that moshe has been uncanny in his predictions, and you know, the, the the once mighty empire of Egypt is crumbling. So they say to him. How long will this be a snare for us? How long will we have to suffer? Let's let them go already. Well, why do we need to do that? So they summon Moshe and Aaron back, and they say, okay, I have a deal. Well, let's make a deal. You know who was it? Let you go. And uh, but who who exactly do you want to take with you? You guys want to go on a three-day retreat to bring sacrifice to God? Well, okay, who's gonna go? So um Moshe responds, young people. Old people, sons, daughter, the flock, the cattle. It's going to be a huge festival. Everyone and everything is coming. So Pharaoh says to them, never going to happen. Uh, how are you going to go with your kids? Look, the evil intent is opposite your eyes. I have a different proposal. Let the men go. The men are going to want to do the worshiping of God. Everyone else could stay here. And he said, if you don't like the terms, you can leave. Again, we see Pharaoh thinks that he has some sort of leverage. Uh, he and this is—it's common for us. You know, we get used to think we get in our own little world and we forget about God. So we assume people have real power and they have leverage when it's just a—it's just an illusion. Pharaoh's like, "I'm the king. You're coming to me and you're asking me to do something. I'm giving you an offer. You take it or leave it." And and Moshe is like, "You're a joke." You know, this is a mockery. Who are you? You have no power. You're a little ant who is brandishing a, a tiny little stick and coming to threaten me. It's, it's silly. And uh, you have, you you know, and you still believe that we're somewhat subject to your, uh, you know, to your ideas and, and, and to your limitations. Now it's interesting here. He says, uh, look, the evil intent is opposite your faces. Reu ki There's something bad. Why you want to go? There's something bad in your in your destiny. That's what he says. Now there's a very interesting Rashi here. Rashi says a midrash. He quotes a midrash, an Agadic midrash. And he says there's some sort of star that is called Ra and Pharaoh tells uh, Pharaoh tells Moshe. I see with my astrological acuity that there's some bad things. If you're gonna go, you're gonna hit something There's a there's a force called Ra that's in front of you, and if you go into, into the desert, you're gonna have a lot of bloodshed. And when actually happened, once the people actually left, um, and they send with the golden calf. Again, spoiler alert. And God wanted to to destroy the Jewish people, and Moshe said to God, remember when Egypt, when Pharaoh threatened this raw, there's this bad thing before you, you don't want the Egyptians to say that God taught, took them out raw with with his power, and therefore God transformed that the blood is not one of bloodshed." The blood is one of a mitzvah, i.e. the mitzvah of circumcision. That's what Rashi says. Pretty remarkable idea. And I think the lesson is sometimes uh, the destiny is set. Uh, Pharaoh saw something that was accurate. He saw that there's bloodshed in the future. In his mind, he connected the dots and he said that the only way to get there is through a very bad result. Bloodshed, what does that mean? It sounds very bad. And the truth is that he was right about the result. It was bloodshed, but it was the good kind of bloodshed. Uh, it was a bloodshed of a mitzvah, a bloodshed of, uh, of celebration. I think, uh, you know, that's a, there's a broader lesson here. There's of course a nationalistic lesson. We're told in the Talmud that the Messiah will only come either in a generation that's entirely righteous or in a generation that's entirely wicked. What this means is that the result is fixed. Messiah is going to come. However, the path, that's up to us. It could be a path of entirely righteous. We could earn the result. Or it could be a path of entirely wickedness. The result can come despite our behavior. Now, those are vastly different experiences, even though the result is the same. Uh, There's another example. On a more personal, individualistic level, uh, this is a good pedagogical lesson, the Talmud says that there are certain kids that are born with certain instincts that are innate and immutable. For example, the Talmud says that there are some kids that are going to be, are going to be ones that do bloodshed. But what precisely the, what kind of bloodshed it is, it depends on their choices. They could be a mohel, a, a, a ritual a surgeon for circumcision. They could be a surgeon, a physician. They could be a butcher, or they could be a thief slash murderer. The result's the same. the result is they they're the ones who need to do bloodshed. I would surmise that those kids that like to dismember uh, daddy longlegs legs, you know those kids and that they do from a very young age, they have a tendency towards violence. they like blood, whereas the other kids they see blood and they start gagging and the nature of the child is fixed. the result is the same. there is bloodshed. How you get there and do you utilize that for a mitzvah or do you utilize that for a sin? Well, that's the free will of every person. But it's a good lesson for us as, I would say, parents and educators that sometimes a kid is heading on a path towards a fixed destination. You can change the destination, but you can change, is that a good destination or is it a bad destination? Are you utilizing their qualities for good? Are you channeling them in a way that they are able to take what they have as fixed, and use it in the proper setting, or not. Uh, Samosha stretched out his hand, and uh, a swarm of locusts come, they sweep up everything, and the whole night and day, there's this wind that brings the entire locust, and it totally covers everything. It covers the eye of the land, and it was darkness. And if you ever see, you can watch some of the... Uh, Videos online of a swarm of locusts—it's just millions and billions of tiny little grasshoppers that fly in these swarms and consume absolutely everything along their path. But it's you know there's so many of them that you actually can't see the sun. If you actually look try to look through them. It's you know there's just such a perpetual flow of uh, of of the locusts of the grasshoppers that you can't actually see the sun. and The way it he describes here, that it was there was darkness uh, upon the land because uh, there were so many locusts and it was just covering the sun. Uh, of course, Pharaoh gets all freaked out, calls back to motion, and Aaron, I sinned, I sinned to God, I sinned to you, why don't you pray and remove this terrible death? And they leave and they start praying and the Almighty makes another wind that takes the locust and sends it all away. And verse 19 ends that there was not a single locust found in the entire border of Egypt. And This is interesting because this is an illustration of, of how God acts. What does it mean that there was not even a single locust left in the land of Egypt? So locust is actually something that people like to eat. You would like take locusts and it's kind of crunchy, I would imagine. Uh, actually, locusts is actually kosher. Uh, and in the Sephardic communities, they still have a tradition which, which locusts they eat, which ones they don't. So what happened is that uh, the people in Egypt who like to eat locusts, they, uh, they say, hey, it's terrible. Locusts swept and ate everything, but let's try to take a net out and grab a whole bunch of them. At least we'll have a decent meal after this is done. So they they grab a net and stoop up a whole bunch of them and they the way it's described here, they put it on salt, i.e. they preserve it. And these are dead locusts. When it says that God swept all the locusts away, there was not even one left, that's referring to even the ones that they wanted to stay, even those were swept away. And I think this is a good little illustration of how the Almighty operates. When the Almighty operates, it's everything done with precision and everything is done completely. If you remember last week, we talked about the frogs. Moshe prayed that uh, that uh, only the frogs of the plague should die. Because had he prayed that all the frogs should die, then every single frog in the world would have died. Because that's what happens. You ask God for something, you get what you ask for sometimes. And therefore, you want to make sure that you don't want to make frogs go extinct. You just want to stop the plague. Here, Moshe prayed that all the... All the... Locust in Egypt sh- should be removed, and indeed it was, and even the ones that people had intended to keep, that, that went with it as well. And of course, God hardens his heart, and he doesn't send the people out. And the ninth plate begins right away, and by the way, there's a pattern. The, f- the, f- the, f- the first nine plates are three sets of three. And the first two of each three, i.e., one, two, four, five, and seven, eight, are forewarned. Whereas the third, the sixth, and the ninth are done without warning. So Pharaoh was never warned about the ninth plague, plague of darkness. And God tells Moshe, stretch out your hand, and it'll be darkness. Moreover, the darkness will be tangible. So this is nothing we've ever experienced. I had a, uh, I had a, um, physicist at my house recently. And I asked him, well, what would it be like inside a dark hole? Uh going to be very dark, apparently. Hence the name. Uh, but I think that's what it was kind of like. You know, we think of darkness in only relative terms. If you're in the dark, if you're at night, and it's very dark, and there's no lights, but actually, if you stay there for about a half hour, you're about to see somewhat in darkness. Because uh, it's really, it's not black, it's kind of like really dark. Charcoal or gray that's what it really is you, know is you could si- cool. you could still see um I you know my, my father is a is a pilot of uh, little Cessna planes so one of the rules in a when you fly as a pilot is that night when we fly at night you have to be able to see because you't fly at. Uh, of course you have the computers to help you navigate as well instruments as well. Uh, but he said that the rule is that if you don't have any light, any artificial light for a half hour, then the FAA considers that you could see at night. But if you turn on a little spotlight, you have to start the half hour once more. What this means is, is that darkness is all relative. You know, so if you have light and then you come to darkness, then you're not used to it. You can't see anything. But if you are get accustomed to the darkness, of course, your, your eyes expand to pull in whatever light there is at, at night. And you could actually see—you uh, could see in the dark. This darkness was an entirely different darkness. It was absolute blackness, total non-vision. Uh, moreover, it was also um, palpable. You could actually feel it. There was some—it was—it was a condition that was not just absence of light. It was the presence of some other force that actually froze people in place. It was—it was such a thick blanket of darkness. That the people had, you know, were frozen in place. Verse 23. No man can see his brother, nor can anyone rise from his place for a three day period. But for all the children of Israel, there was light in their dwellings. They didn't have, uh, this, uh, this plague. Now, Rashi tells us something very interesting here. Rashi says, why was there the plague of darkness? He gives two reasons. First of all, because in a, in a few short weeks, the Jews are going to go and borrow, with uh, air quotes, they're going to borrow vessels from their neighbors. They're going to go say, oh, we're going on this pilgrimage, we want to have a lot of gold and silver, can I borrow it? And we'll see in this week's parasha that the Almighty will give the appeal uh, of the Jews to their neighbors, and therefore, even though it may be imprudent to lend your... Uh, erstwhile slave who's going on a pilgrimage uh, your gold and silver and jewelry but they did it anyhow. Uh, but what's going to happen is is that you're going to go to your neighbor and say, hey, I, you know, can I borrow your, your gold watch? I'd like to borrow your necklace. I'd like to borrow your bracelet. Maybe some fancy china. I'd like to borrow it for my trip. It's just me. I'm destitute. I don't have anything. Uh, you know, and you'll tell him Oh, actually, I actually remember when you were frozen in place, I walked into your house and I looked through your drawers and I saw that you have a nice Rolex and you have this nice really you know, gold and diamond necklace. I actually saw that. Uh, and they'll say, uh and they'll have to lend it to them. That's what, That's one reason. And that's why there was darkness, but the Jews could see so they could rummage through the stuff of their neighbors to know what to ask for. In a, in, when they want to borrow stuff, that's the first. That's the second reason. brought Rashi. The first reason. So this is interesting. <laughs> but the first reason is that during this time, there were, you know, it was very clear to everyone that this is going to reach some sort of climax. That is going to be. That's going to amount the Jews leaving. Uh, but if you think about it, you know, the Jews were there for hundreds of years. They established deep roots in the land. They have their, you know, their kids go to school there and they're, yes, they're, they're second class citizens. Yes, they're tormented. But this is where, this is what they know. This is where they live. And Moshe's coming and saying, we're just going to some other land. We're going to walk with our kids, with a whole multitude of people into the desert. It's, it's pretty perilous. And you would say, I don't know, you know, you're just walking into the, into the, into the wilderness with Moshe. A lot of people didn't want to go. And what happened to those people? Those people died. When did they die? They died during the holiday, during the plague of darkness. Uh, because we don't want the Egyptians saying, oh, we're suffering, you guys are suffering as well. In order for the Egyptians to not notice, uh, to not see what's happening to some of the Jews who are choosing to not join the nation, Therefore, there was darkness, and they were totally oblivious to everything that happened. That's the other reason, Arashi. And I, I think about this. You know, we have a country in Israel. And this was the dream of all our grandparents. They prayed it, prayed for it for thousands of years. And they're hoping maybe they could go visit Israel once. Maybe they could live there. And that's what they all yearned for. And now there's a country in Israel, and it's a modern, first-world country. It's got a booming economy. It's a nice place. It's safe. It's a good place to live. And what's happening to the Jews in America? And I'm, I'm guilty as everyone else is. We're living here in comfort. We don't, we're very happy. We have our house. We have our mortgage. We have our job. We're very happy. We're very content here. And it's, it's a little bit of an indictment upon us because what about our fact that, you know, we finally got what we wanted? You know, we got the card. We we're allowed to leave Egypt. It's going to happen. Everything you dreamed of, it's happening, and you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm ready. I will, maybe I want to stay here a little bit. And I was thinking, uh, to a certain degree, the same thing applies to our generation. Like we have the land of Israel, we have a state there. It's a it's a wonderful uh, country. It's it's booming. It's flourishing. It's 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 fully developed, and we choose to stay here. And I don't know if history will look kindly upon us. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to ascribe any guilt to anyone, but, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone else is. But it is interesting that Jews in America have chosen, or a lot of them have chosen, to say, yes, we're not participating. And, um, I hope that, uh, well, I think we should at least have this idea in our head we have a nation, we have a country that we belong to. I think that's a step one. Uh, Step two maybe is like, yeah, at least have some sort of dream that maybe we could go, maybe we'll retire in Israel. You know, they have a world-class golf course in in Caesarea. I always make the joke that Israel cannot have a full 18-hole golf course. Because if it was fully 18 holes, part of it would be in Jordan. It's so small. That's the joke. When Ezra led the return to Israel from Babylon at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth. Also, he only took with him forty-two thousand people, around forty-two thousand people. Even the majority of Jews had settled in Babylon. They were very comfortable there. They had built a nice Jewish communities there, and they wanted to stay there. And they stayed there for thousands of years. The community of Babylon was extant until the twentieth century. And the Talmud quotes, you know, one of one of the rabbis, for example, who had. Severe problems with it. How how do you not join? Jewish people go back in Israel and you want to stay in Babylon? And I'm saying so. It's not a new criticism, and it's, it's certainly not a new feeling, but uh, it is it is I think uh, something to think about. To think about the fact that you know we should at least have the notion or the theory that we're not home, and we have a home right now. We're kind of temporarily here, and uh, we're trying to you know, working out some kinks before we get our affairs in order and we move to our permanent home. Even if that's just a pipe dream, I think it's a good it's a good thought to at least bounce around there. People will people will sometimes prefer what they know to the unknown, and there are people that have wanted to go back to prison because the prison you know they had a regimented system and they had their people and they, yes it was prison but they would still prefer that. Uh, and you know even the Jews that did leave and were decided to leave, it's not very easy to say I'm going to live with this heightened level of spiritual realism, that, that that's a significant challenge. Uh, there's an interesting note here, or a, a, just an interesting idea here. So all the Egyptians have darkness, the Jews have light. But I think this really does hammer home the idea that everyone is really living in their own world. And this is, of course, a theme throughout the plague narrative that, you know, there's blood for the Egyptians, the Jew has a glass of water, each one of them sticks a A straw into the glass of water, and the Jews sucks out the water, and the Egyptian sucks out blood. And that's what would happen. And it's teaching them that each one of us is living in our own in our own world. There's a Mishnah that says that everyone has to say, every human has to say, has to declare the world was created for me. Now that of course can be skewed to say, everyone has to serve me, because the world created for me. But the idea is, that the, the real lesson is that everyone has their own world, and everyone's responsible for the, for their own world. Adam was created, it was just Adam. He's the only man, and thus the whole world is worth it. The entire infrastructure is worth it for one man. So, The fact that there's multiple men, there's millions of humans, billions of humans, it just happens to me that each one of us with our individual world, we all happen to be coexisting. All these worlds are coexisting in the same grand place, location. But each one of us are our own individuals. And indeed, during the less during the, the these plagues, this was a powerful lesson where every Jew realizes that God treats me as an individual, and God treats my neighbor, who's the Egyptian, as an individual. My other neighbors, a Jew, also as an individual. And that's a very powerful element of faith. To know that God doesn't you know there's no block grants God treats everyone as an, every human at least as an individual, and that is part of the grand lessons of faith of the uh, of the plates. so again, Pharaoh calls Moshe and again he's under the illusion that he has some sort of negotiating power. He says, okay, go. Take your kids with you, but leave your flock and cattle as a collateral. I'm willing to let you send your kids with your flock and cattle. So Moshe tells him, not only are you going to let us take our cattle, you're going to send with us cattle that you want to donate to the the procession. Um, And again, God hardens his heart, and he does not seek to send them. And then Pharaoh makes the first threat to Moshe. He tells him, uh, he's not happy with what he hears, and he tells Moshe, if you ever come before me again, I'm going to kill you. And Moshe says, you're right, I'm not going to come to you next time, you're going to come to me. I'm not going to have to chase you down, you'll have to chase me down. And while Moshe's there, this is the only time, this is the exception where God gives Moshe prophecy in Egypt. Normally, Moshe would go out of Egypt, out of the atmosphere that's full of idolatry, to have a prophecy, but because this is the last time that Moshe and Pharaoh are going to be speaking before Pharaoh comes and kicks the Jews out, he has a prophecy then and he conveys it to Pharaoh, and that's the warning of the death of the firstborn. I think this is interesting. Um, I once heard a story, I don't remember the details, but Someone quoted a teaching that says, "In the days of the Messiah, all the kings are going to themselves are, are going to kneel before the, the the Messiah." That's what it says. I don't and then one king said to one of the rabbis, he said to him, "Well, what if I don't, what if I don't quote unquote bend the knee? What then?" He says, "If you don't bend the knee, then obviously it's not the Messiah." This is interesting, like, Pharaoh tells Moshe, he has his terms, so the illusion of Pharaoh having any power is still present. And Moshe tells him, no, 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 we're not going to leave on your terms, you're not not going to hold our livestock hostage, you're actually going to contribute towards it. And Pharaoh can't imagine, on what setting would Pharaoh want to contribute towards the loss of his right—the the, the one thing that he's been striving to prevent—it's it, it, inconceivable. How is it possible that the United Nations, every one of them, they're all going to accept God and all going to accept Torah and accept the Jewish people as as God's chosen? How is that going to happen? Their whole life, their, their whole everything they're trying to do is to, to prevent that. But it's not going to be in their terms. It's the same thing. The model is the same. They think they have leverage. That they, they have control. The truth is, God has all the control. Everything. They're a bunch of puppets. They're everything. a bunch of a bunch of little tiny insects. They have no power. Nothing whatsoever. They have the delusion of power. When the time comes, uh, and they're going to see what they really are, and they're the ones that are going to contribute as well. How are we going to build a temple and Temple Mount? How are we going to do that? What do you mean? You know what the big deal they're going to make and uh, with the United Nations? No, they're a bunch of they're a bunch of clowns. They're a bunch of puppets. They have no power. They're going to contribute towards. The gold and the silver needed. Everyone's going to come and say, "How do we help?" That's what's going to happen, right? And if, it's, if that doesn't happen, then we know we haven't reached we haven't reached the destination quite yet. So Moshe tells Pharaoh that there's one more, or God tells Moshe that Moshe can raise the Pharaoh. There's one more plate that I'm going to Pharaoh to all of Egypt, and then he's going to send you away. And a total, totally, he's going to he's going to evict you. He's going to drive you out of the land. Um, but first, make sure you borrow gold and silver vessels, and everyone's, uh, and here we see that God's gonna give the favor of the, the, of the Jews in the eyes of their neighbors, and they're gonna lend them. And Moshe conveys to Pharaoh, around midnight, God is going to, uh, come through the land of Egypt, and all the firstborn are gonna die. Firstborn of Pharaoh, firstborn of the of the midwife, the maidservant, the firstborn of the animals. its going to, All the firstborn are going to die. And it's going to be a tremendous cry. It's going to be a terrible wailing, terrible tragedy. But, amongst the Jewish people, not even a dog is going to bark. It's going to be absolute silence and tranquility. Nothing is going to... Nothing, there's going to be no noise and no distractions. So this is a few interesting themes here. First of all, if you look at Moshe's instruction or his prediction to Pharaoh, he says to him, at around midnight. But when the story actually happens, it's exactly at midnight. So why does Moshe tell him at around midnight? The answer is because Pharaoh was the ultimate cynic. Imagine Pharaoh had his atomic clock and he was looking at the clock and he was saying, uh, and, and at what his, at exactly midnight, all the firstborn died. But in his clock, it said, his clock was a, a half a second off. So it said at 11.59 and, you know, 59 and a half seconds. Pharaoh would say, ah, you guys were wrong. He said midnight, it wasn't exactly midnight. If Pharaoh had any reason to be cynical and to doubt and to be skeptical and dubious, no matter how overwhelming the prediction is, and how precise it was, because of his flawed methodologies of time collecting, he would have rejected it, even though hundreds of thousands of people are dying at this, around the same time. <laughs> Certainly, it's still powerful enough, but he said, oh, you're inaccurate. And therefore, when he tells Pharaoh, "Like at around midnight, around midnight-ish, all the first part of the guy. And in, in truth, it was precisely at midnight when they died, but we see Pharaoh has this tendency Regardless of how overwhelming the evidence is, he's going to always try to find a poke hole. He's not someone who's willing to accept the truth for what it is. He's a, an ultimate cynic, and he's looking for reasons to reject it. Now, by the way, as an aside, how do the people die exactly at midnight? Right, There is no time it's called midnight. It's either before midnight or right away after midnight. So, when did they die? It's a good question, right? Midnight is just a marker between the, the time beforehand and the time afterwards. So, it says that they died at midnight exactly. How is that possible? It's a good question. A little bit of a, of a brain teaser. And the answer is, well, the people were alive until midnight, and then precisely after midnight, they were already dead. Indeed, there's no time of midnight, but there's no time of death. That you're either alive or you're dead. They were alive prior to midnight, and they were dead after midnight. Now, what's this notion of the dogs are not barking? Really strange idea. It's quiet, and the dogs aren't barking. And by the way, we know, uh but uh, there is this tradition. Certainly, if there's a mad dog, it's a wild dog, a rabid dog, you say this verse. Amongst the Jews, there's no dog barking, no dog coming after anyone, and it's supposed to quell the uh advances of a rabid dog. I don't know. But what's this idea that there's no dog barking? Really strange idea. So I saw something very fascinating. Uh, A dog is used in Jewish literature as the epitome of chutzpah. And the reason why is because a dog, why is a dog, why does a dog have chutzpah? Because a dog has a very powerful sense of smell. And the sense of smell is the sense most associated with the soul. For example, after Shabbat is over, Shabbat is where we have an expanded soul. After Shabbat is over, we console the soul by smelling the b'samim, the spices, which is a way to invoke the soul. When Isaac uh, encountered Jacob, who he thought was Esau, he remarks how the smell is like the smell of the the Garden of Hashem. The smell is always associated with the soul, with spirituality. The reason why the animal has chutzpah is because the animal says, look at me, I have a more powerful, developed sense of smell than the human. I'm better than them. And that's why when a dog barks on a spiritualistic, kind of esoteric level, what it means is the dork is saying, the, the dog is saying, look at me, I'm better than you because I have a more developed sense of smell, which is the spiritual sense, and therefore I'm better than you. But at this point in time, the dogs stop barking. What's going to happen to the Jewish people at midnight at this revelation is even the dogs who hitherto had believed that they're more spiritually developed than the Jewish people, they stop. They didn't bark anymore. And the reason why they didn't bark anymore, because now it became clear the heightened spiritual nature and status of the nation, and even the dogs no longer had the temerity to even suggest that they're more spiritually advanced than the Jews. Okay, so Moshe tells Pharaoh about the pending death of the firstborn, and he storms out. God tells Moshe, is not going to be impressed, in order that I could do more miracles. The power doesn't send the people. And then chapter 12 is the beginning of mitzvos. You start getting a whole litany of mitzvos, which doesn't really end until the Torah ends. And if you look at the first Rashi in the Torah, the first commentary of Rashi, the very first verse in the Torah, he asks a question, why why does the Torah not start from chapter 12, verse 1 of Exodus. This, this, according to Rashi, at least in the question, this ought to be an appropriate starting point to the Torah, because here we start to get the first mitzvahs of the Torah. So the answer is that there's lessons that are inherent in the previous part of the Torah. But the truth is, well, at least the theory behind the question is, that Torah, the word Torah means instruction. Well, when do the instructions actually start? It starts over here. And therefore... Wow. Didn't it start with circles? Yes. Okay. So interspersed uh, earlier, there are some instructions, but bring them over here. I'm saying we can find a way to edit those uh, later on. But you know, of course, Rashi's not Rashi's not trying to suggest to alter the text, but he's trying to bring out a point. The point is that the Torah is a book of instructions. When we read stories, they're not historical anecdotes. They're instructions that are that are uh, presented. In a story form, not to say that they're not historical. It means that the goal is not the historical uh, element of it. The goal is the is the lesson, and i.e. the Torah within it. Here we get start getting very practical with mitzvot that are relevant to us in the way they're presented. We don't have to draw the lesson. We just learn out the learn the mitzvah, and thus this is a little bit of a change. Of course, there's going to be a lot of narrative and story uh, telling from here on as well. But here is. Where we start to get the mitzvahs in rapid fire. So the first mitzvah is uh, the mitzvah of the rosh chodesh of the new month, uh, and this is an interesting mitzvah because this, well, first of all, I think this shows somewhat of the power of Torah. We have a very com- we we accepted for ourselves a very complicated task, and that is to adopt a lunar month but to maintain a solar year. So our month is controlled by the moon. Every revolution of the moon is a new month. And every revolution of the earth around the sun is a new year. And to balance those two, we're the only ones that do that. And the reason why we're the only ones that do that because the only ones that had God's instructions on how to do that were us. And that's why the Muslims, for example, they follow a lunar month and a lunar year. So all of their holidays can be in the summer, in the winter, in the spring, in the fall. They're all uh, all over the place. Because every year, the lunar year is 11 days shorter than the solar year. A lunar month is 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 3.3 seconds. Now, the reason why we know that is not because we sent out the Hubble telescope or something like that. It's because the Torah says it. And that's a very precise measure, the one we still use today. Now, oh yeah, well, the Torah doesn't go through the mathematics, the Torah goes through the structure. um, The details are part of the oral Torah. But, again, how did they know that? How How did they know this in the oral Torah? But here we see, we're told we have to follow the lunar month, but, critically, the holiday of Passover, that of course is the mitzvah that we're going to commemorate the, the exodus, that has to be done in the springtime. So the fact that the holiday of Passover is on the 15th day of Nisan, but it's always in the spring, that creates the whole mathematical problems of how you balance these two. The way you actually do it, is so every 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 lunar month is is 29 and a half days so is it is it a 29 day month or a 30 day month so it's 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 roughly 50-50 uh, but it's a little more so it's a little slightly more often it's a 30 day month because there's still 44 minutes uh and 3 3. point some odd seconds that you need to account for uh now you have a solar year that's 365 days plus uh, uh 5 hours and 55 minutes. You have to find a way to make those two balance and it's it's mind-boggling the complexity. The way they actually do it is a 247 year cycle broken down into 13 cycles of 19 years, broken down to 91 uh, leap months every Seven times every 19 years we have an extra month of Adar. Last year we had an extra month of Adar. This year we don't have. Uh, but if you actually do that, you can do this for infinity. You have a 247 year cycle broken down into 13 cycles of 19 years. Seven leap years within every 19 years. 91 leap years, i.e. 91 extra months out of this 247 years. And it's all down to pursue. Uh, to me it's always interesting like how if someone did not like how did primitive or at least scientifically primitive people who didn't have access to all the things that we have how do they know how to do this in a way that is entirely precise down to the millisecond I don't know I'm saying it's God and this is where we get the mitzvah so this is the first mitzvah given it's pretty remarkable pretty impressive and uh I would say it's 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 a question the people that people that question the divinity of the Torah, how do they reconcile that? How is it possible that a bunch of random Joes who allegedly wrote the Torah cobbled together various folklore and fairy tales and everything was just a hodgepodge mix that was put together by some redactor, how do they reconcile when they see mitzvos that were applied mitzvos that are done with such precision and in a way that Really, we know today is verifiably accurate. It's pretty remarkable. That's the first mitzvah to establish the new month, the new moon, and to have a calendar. And the calendar, in fact, is one of the things that was banned. Uh, Antiochus and the Syrian Greeks, when they made their assault on Torah, one of the mitzvahs that they forbade was the mitzvah of establishing the new month. Because this is the one thing that really keeps the religion together. If you don't have an, if you don't have the regulation of the calendar, you don't know when Yom Kippur is. You don't know what Rosh Hashanah is. You don't know when Passover is. And then you have a splintered people, and the na- the nation disintegrates. But this is, uh, you know, ready for the times of Moshe. We're already doing this. This is the mitzvah that we're that, that we are doing. Pretty impressive. And then we're told, of course, the mitzvah of the carbon Pesach of the Passover offering which essentially means, it's what we recreate in our Passover seders, it's the celebration of the eve of Passover, and they have to take a a lamb or a kid, a sheep, for the family. And um, the way this worked is that every, uh, every group of people got together, and they split up an animal, and they would have the uh, meal together, all ready to go. You know, they have their backpacks on, they got their staff on, they have their liters of water, they have those backpacks with the water. Yeah, those little things that are called the camels. They're all ready to go. And then everyone's all dressed and ready to go, and they're having they're gonna they take this animal and get ready uh, to have a celebration before they leave. Now, when did they take when did they separate this animal? They had to separate it on the tenth day of Nisan, and on the fourteenth day of Nisan, they uh, slaughter it, and they prepare it for, uh, for the feast of that evening, and they have to roast it, and they have to eat matzos, and they have to have maror, all the things that we do on the Seder Eve, the first night of, of Pesach. They can't, now let her cook it, it has to be roasted, and you can't have any leftover. You have to eat it all before, before the morning. And you eat it while you're ready to go. That's the that's the mitzvah. Now it's interesting here that uh, the only time this mitzvah was done, um, so long as the temple was it was extant, they had a mitzvah to take an animal before the holiday of Passover and sacrifice it and eat it in celebration the night of Passover. And our seder today is modeled after that celebration. Now. In Egypt, they had an extra mitzvah, and that mitzvah was to take it on the 10th of the month and guard it for four days so it doesn't get a blemish. And there's an interesting Rashi here uh, that tells us why did they have to guard it for four days in Egypt? Because they're about to leave, and they're about to have this momentous spiritual revelation, but They don't have any mitzvahs. And therefore, God created a special mitzvah that they should take the animal and guard it. It doesn't get any blemishes for four four days and that will build their mitzvah repertoire and that will make them more capable of the exodus. Now, the Talmud tells us, just a a way to understand this, that there's an entirely different model for spiritual uh, acquirement versus physical equipment. If you want to fill up a a jug with water, so if you have a full jug, you can no longer fill it with water. It has to be empty in order for it to hold something in it. So that's the rules in our world. The vessel has to be empty in order for it to be filled. But in the spiritual world, it's the exact opposite. If the vessel is empty, it can't be filled. If the vessel is full, then it can be filled. The idea is is that for someone to absorb spiritual uh, messages, they have to be a vessel that is already filled with Torah and The Jewish people are about to go and experience the amazing developments and spiritual messages of the Exodus, and especially of that night when they're going to leave. Therefore, they have to make sure that their spiritual vessels are already filled in order to be capable of absorbing it. Just like if you want to have a vessel that's going to hold something physically I empty it out, if you want a vessel that's capable of holding something spiritual, you have to fill it up prior, and then it going to hold things. Pretty remarkable. And this is, I think, broadly, it's a, good, it's a good rule of thumb. The more ignorant someone is about Torah, the more they assume there's nothing for them to learn. Whereas, when someone is more replete with Torah, then they realize how much more there is to learn. The Torah is compared to water. So I once heard an explanation. In the name of the Chavetz Chaim, that if you walk in, if you want to go to Venice Beach in California and you walk into the water, you say, "I can walk from here to Japan. It's only up to my ankles." And indeed, if you just step your toe into Torah, you're like, "I got it. This is pretty shallow. It's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty manageable. It's 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 pretty fixed." But the deeper you go in, the more you realize how much more there is. The more you fill up your spiritual vessel the more you're capable of filling up, and the, and the broader you expand your spiritual horizons. So uh, everyone everyone does that. Um, uh, this day is going to be a day of remembrance. This is going to be the holiday. This is going to be the mitzvah. Seven days you eat only matzah, uh, but you have to get rid of all the chametz, all the leaven from your house. Anyone who eats leavened food, anyone who eats chametz on the holiday Passover, their soul shall be cut off from Israel, this is verse 19, from the first day to the seventh day. And again, we're told in verse 19 that for seven days, leaven may not be found in your houses. For anyone who eats leavening, that soul shall be cut off from the assembly of Israel, whether a convert or a native of the land. Don't eat any chametz. In all your dwelling, you should eat only matzah. So of course, we're getting in in quick succession the laws of Passover, laws of eating matzah and not eating chametz. It's interesting here. We say that if someone eats chametz on Pesach, then they get cut off from the Jewish people. That's what it says. And to us, that sounds very excessive. Uh, Their soul gets cut off, more specific. That's what the verse says. Now, I think a good way to explain this is that there's, just like there's a Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the physical world, there's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the spiritual world. Just like if your body doesn't have oxygen for four minutes, you're dead. You know, food for or, or water. You have to have water every three days, or what, or something like that. You have to have food, shelter, etc. Your soul has an equal agenda. It too has hierarchies of needs, and mitzvot are ways to address those needs. Uh, we're told that Torah is compared to bread, Torah compared to water, Torah compared to oxygen. Covers is almost a multivitamin for your soul. It covers everything. Here, the mitzvah of not eating leaven on Pesach, we're told your soul gets cut off. What it means is is that for the seven days of Pesach, chametz becomes like poison for your soul, and therefore you eat it, it's poison for the soul, it's almost, your soul gets cut off, it's almost suicide for the soul. That's a good way of understanding that. That in, in the spiritual world, it's, it mirrors the physical world that the things that we do are not just memorials or uh, arbitrary mitzvahs because of some... It's it's needs that we have internally. Our soul has needs. In fact, we're told that a soul has 613 parts. Each mitzvah corresponds to one part of the soul. Because a mitzvah is there to nourish the soul. We're not doing it for someone else, for our parents, for our rabbis, for God. We're doing it for ourselves. You're feeding your soul just like... Your motivation for eating breakfast is for yourself. You don't say, "I'm eating breakfast because God." Maybe you should say that. I don't know. Maybe that's a mitzvah, but people are not normally attuned to saying, saying that it's for themselves. Mitzvahs are similar, but they're for us. We're not doing them for someone else, for some other entity to make God happy, to throw God a bone. That's not why we do it for ourselves to feed our soul. Okay, so Moshe goes and conveys this message to the Jewish people. They uh, they get they get the Passover offering. Uh, they prepare their homes uh, for that momentous evening. And God comes and um, is going to... He tells them, of course, about the the, the future mitzvahs, the mitzvah of Passover for eternity. And in in verse 29, we're told what actually happens at midnight. So here, and it was at precisely the middle of the night, and God struck... The firstborn, every firstborn land of Egypt, firstborn of Pharaoh, who's sitting on his throne, the firstborn of a captive in a dungeon, the firstborn of the animals. And Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night, him and all his servants and all of Egypt, and there's this huge cry, because there isn't a single home that does not have a cadaver. So there's an amazing Rashi here. It's a one-word Rashi, but it really tells a whole story. Uh, Verse 30, it says, Pharaoh woke up. Rashi says one word, mimitaso, which means from his bed. And my question always bothered me, what's Rashi contributing to the story? What what question is he answering? What, What do we know now that we don't know prior? Pharaoh woke up from his bed. How does that add one word? That's it. Rashi's trying to help us understand the verse. Help us understand the text. How is this contributing to the story, to the narrative? And I think it really is a powerful a powerful lesson. Moshe has been nine for nine with his predictions of plates. Pharaoh is steadfastly refusing to be impacted by them. Moshe tells him in the middle of the night, around midnight, all the firstborn are going to die. Pharaoh sends him packing. Pharaoh was totally not impressed. Moreover, you would imagine that if, some, if Pharaoh was impressionable, he would even consider at least the potential possibility that Moshe may be right. But no. Bedtime comes and Pharaoh gets into his pajamas and gets to bed and goes to sleep like every other night. Pharaoh, his heart was so hard, he was so unimpressionable that even though Moshe told him firstborn I'm gonna die, your firstborn and gonna die? He was told, it was like any other night. Bedtime comes, you go to bed. Pharaoh thus was in bed, and when this great cry that erupted at midnight, he woke up from his bed. But this shows us Pharaoh's character, and the result of a hard heart where someone is really not impacted, and no matter how critical you would imagine, how prudent, you know, he should have been, to at least get up and be in the control room, be in the war room, and figure out how to respond, at least to the potential the rat, pharaohs in bed, schluffing away. Why did the firstborn, why did they absorb the brunt of the power? So my grandfather says something amazing. He says that a theme throughout the Torah is that the firstborn have a, a, a greater spiritual sensitivity. And that's why at the end of the parasha, God says, Kadeish li kol uh, sanctify for me every firstborn. Firstborn have a natural tendency in it, an innate connection to spiritual matters. At midnight, there was a revelation of spiritual power. Most people did not have the antenna, the uh, receptors to absorb it. So it just deflected off of them. The firstborn that have a certain innate spiritual capacity they were impacted by it, they absorbed it, and it was like a jolt of electricity that they couldn't handle and they died. But, the firstborn of the Jewish people, they were spared, this is why it says, if you look later on, chapter 13, we talk about the sanctifying the firstborn, because they really should have been susceptible to the same spiritual force that was unleashed, they too should have died, but they were spared miraculously. So, uh the way I look at the death of the firstborn is that it was part of what God revealed, and it was a byproduct of that is they couldn't handle it even though they had some sort of connection to it, and therefore they died whereas the firstborn of the Jewish people they were spared so it's it's midnight uh there's a there's a dead body in every home. Pharaoh wakes up in his pajamas, he runs he's running through the place trying to find. Moshe and Aaron indeed, his words were prescient. It's Moshe and Aaron did not come back to him. He came to them, and he instructs them: "says Get out of here! I'm evicting you, you the Jewish people, everyone. Go, go, do like what you want. Uh, take your animals, your livestock, your children. Everyone goes, and give me a blessing as well." And they are just sending them out so fast. They're they're forcing them to leave, and they're terrified that they're all going to die and the people you know, have their food in the oven getting ready, and they have to pull it out before it's fully done, and that's why they have the matzah, and they're quickly rushed out, that they were dressed and ready to go. And they take with them from the Egyptians' silver, gold vessels, garments, everything, and like we said, Hashem granted favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. They gave them as much as they can, and verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sucros, 600,000 men Besides for the children, also, of course, the midst multitude with them, the flock, and lots of animals, a huge procession leaving the land of Egypt. Now, I heard an interesting understanding of, of the midst multitude from in the name of the Arizal, or the Isaac Luria. If you remember, way back in Joseph's time, one of his conditions of dispensing grain during the years of famine was people had to circumcise. And, of course, we, uh, Joseph telling people to circumcise, it wasn't just telling them to undergo a, uh, a surgery, it was about teaching them about the lessons of circumcision. So he would give lectures to people and teach them about, you know, the idea behind circumcision, which is a broad idea of, of a spiritual network of life, to say, we're, you know, we're here, and we have something that we need to improve and to fix it and to bring God into the world. Apparently, some people were so moved by what Joseph taught them. They were so inspired and galvanized and mobilized that they actually separated themselves from from the Egyptians and they created like this Noahide movement amongst the Egyptians where they were righteous Gentiles. And they were inspired by Joseph and thus they were a separate group amongst the Egyptians. They didn't participate in the torture of the Jewish people and therefore when the time for the Exodus came, they were allowed to join the group because of their righteousness. Whereas other Egyptians who maybe were not righteous, and wanted to join, they wanted to jump on the bandwagon, they were not allowed to join. Now, I think if you just get, you know, imagine this, just what kind of, you know, what, what is this demand of, of a, of a nation? Yes, it's a hard to live in, in the land of Egypt. Uh, and yes, the notion of freedom is really, really enticing. Preposition, but still, like you think about it, you have kids, you have livestock, you have your family, and you're walking into the desert. And what's your plan? Uh, Israel's already occupied, uh, not not quite the way it's occupied today. Uh, there's there's people and there's empires there. You're walking out of Egypt. Yes, you could leave. What do you have with you? You have matzah for a couple of days. What's the plan? How are you feeding everyone? What about water? We have to appreciate. Yes, there's miracles left, right, and center, but it still demands them to jump into this, and to jump, and, and and to commit themselves, because there's you know like there is no going back. You might have wanted to go back, but there is no going back. Uh, this is it. And do they ask how we gonna? How, how are we going to drink? How many water bottles do they bring with them? You know, you're walking into a desert, and historically, we use this decision as an act of of bravery of valor, where they were, you know, submit themselves to God and committed themselves to the plan. We're in, we're going. We have no plans. We're walking into the desert with our kids. What's going to be? We'll rely on God. Okay, middle of the day, they are leaving. And we're told once again that this night is a night of safeguarding. This is the night of protection the Jewish people are leaving. And indeed for generations, for eternity, we're going to remember this night, the night we left. And we're told a slew of laws regarding the Pesach offering. Um, everyone has to eat it. If someone's uncircumcised, they're not allowed to eat it. Uh, it has to be eaten in the house. You can't take it out and show your friends. You can't like like walk your neighbors and show them, look what I have. Uh, you can't break a bone of it. And all these, by the way, all these mitzvahs, they're all to show the new status of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were slaves, now they're freemen. And thus they act with regalty, with royalty, as, you know, as deserved of such people. They don't crack bones and start sucking out marrow. That's not the way, it's not a dignified way of eating. They don't go and show their neighbors, oh, look look what I have, look at this meat. You know, you don't show off your meat, even, you know, unless you're, someone who doesn't have it that frequently. Also, they're told you can't cook it, you have to roast it. What happens when you cook something, it kind of, it stays the same size. You take a, like a huge piece of meat, you put it on the grill, and it was like this earlier, and it shrinks. But it gets, it, it's tastier, but it's smaller. And if someone who's poor, they're trying to think, how do I maximize my calories? I need to have as much, as much food as I can get. Whereas someone who's a king, I want to have, they become a connoisseur. They want to have the tastiest. And all these mitzvahs are all to show that we are now kings. We're leaving the land of Egypt. And thus, even uh, during our Seder that we do in modern times, we lean, we drink wine. We're trying to demonstrate that at least for that night, We are like teens. Uh, We're given more mitzvahs, a mitzvah to remember the exodus. Uh, We're told twice in chapter 13, mitzvah of tefillin. Again, this is going to be a launching site of all mitzvahs. All mitzvahs, because really all of faith and all of our nation is established here and now. And that's why the tefillin, like what's tefillin? Tefillin is like a jewelry that is... Proclaiming the Exodus. If you open up a tefillin, you'll see four uh, four scrolls, and it records these verses. Uh, chapter thirteen, uh, chapter thirteen has two of the sections from verse one to verse ten, and from verse eleven to verse sixteen. Those are two of the sections inside the tefillin uh, um, compartments. And it says you were the tefillin to remember to remember the Exodus. And by the way, holidays are to remember the Exodus and. A whole slew of mitzvot are to remember essence because this is the transformation of a people of a tribe of a family into a nation because a nation is not just about the people and the genetics, so to speak, it's about the ideals, and the ideals are faith submission to God, and that relationship between the Jewish nation and God is started right over here, and thus the mitzvot are there to maintain the bond that began there. And that's why all the mitzvot are referencing back to that time. It's almost like uh, you have an anniversary. It's an anniversary of the beginning of the relationship. This is the beginning of the relationship. The mitzvot are our celebrations, our milestones, our markers, our watershed moments where we stop and say, we have a relationship with God. that began with the Exodus, and thus we're keeping the, the light aflame. We're keeping the warmth for maintaining and preserving the relationship that was started then and there. There is a commentary on the Ramban. I don't have time to read it. I was planning on reading it. Uh, but my grandfather, a blessed memory, he said that every Jew should memorize this Ramban, this statement of the Ramban. I don't have it memorized, but I figured we could at least read it. But I guess uh, we'll have to do it, uh, each one of us on our own. But this Ramban, he discusses, the significance of the Exodus in Jewish life. All of Jewish life is always referencing back to the Exodus. We see, we see this again, the mitzvahs are all here, and indeed, uh, holidays are all oriented about the Exodus. We have multiple holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we all say, Zechot, Mitzrayim, Shabbos, we say, Remembering Mitzrayim, Egypt. Um, Passover, Sukkot, Shavuot, all of them we reference going back to Egypt. Egypt, indeed, what's happening over here is the foundations of faith of the nation. And thus, having a touch point with it throughout our life, throughout our day, and throughout our year brings us back to that status and reminds us of what we already know. It's almost as if, if someone knows something, but they're apt to forget it, they put little, little signs. It's almost like a, there's a, there's a, there's a motion picture about a guy who loses his memory. So he puts signs all over to remind him of stuff. We're like that. You know, we, we saw the Exodus and we were wowed. And we're like, I'm changing my life. But then we, we start forgetting. We have amnesia. We start forgetting it. So in order to not forget it, we put these little signposts all over our life. Every time we pass a mezuzah, what does it say to mezuzah? It says we left Egypt. Remember, remember. Fill in. you wrap it to your head. Shma, you say morning at night. Every Shabbos, you have a whole day of remembering it. Because, Yes, we saw fantastic things, but we're we're conditioned to forget it. And when we forget it, 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 we can be totally oblivious of things that are the most important for us. And therefore, we need to put reminders everywhere to have signposts on our door and, and on our head and all these signs throughout our life, not to forget the Exodus and what we knew and what is so important.